Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Life Lessons from Sport and Beyond. I'm Simon Mundy and this week I'm joined by Bill Bezik, one of the world's top sports psychologists who worked at Manchester United under Sir Alex Ferguson and who's worked with some truly elite athletes, including the likes of Adam Peaty. It's Bill's second appearance on the show and our first episode went down a storm and this one was a joy to record too because Bill really is chock full of wisdom and fantastic advice. The theme of this episode is taking responsibility but frankly Bill shares actionable life lessons galore. His new book is called Changing Your Story, 20 Life Lessons Drawn from Elite Sports and I can't recommend it enough. Here is a snapshot of what's coming up. Taking responsibility is the start of everything. If you take responsibility, you stop making excuses. You stop blaming. You are then responsible for your own actions. You're taking responsibility for your own behavior. You're taking responsibility for your own attitudes. That changes your view of the world. Like I said, it was a privilege talking to Bill. It always is. And I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. But before we get to it, I want to give a shout out to my sponsors to thank them for their ongoing support, which allows me to put out weekly episodes. Now, whether you are anxious, struggling to sleep or focus, Pure Sports CBD have something for everyone. They've got a brilliant range of oils, capsules, balms and nootropics. Their range, in my opinion, is unparalleled and they have a superb new mind and body mushroom blend as well as female balance for hormone health to add to their classics like their clarity and unwind oils. Pure Sport CBD products are used and trusted by lots of the world's top elite athletes, not least because they are triple lab tested and contain absolutely no THC. And you can get 20% off all their products using the code LIFE20 at checkout. That's LIFE and the number 20, all one word, 
at puresportcbd.com. Right, let's get to this week's conversation with the fantastic Bill Bezik. Bill Bezik, how lovely to see you. How are you? Fine, Simon. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Delighted to have you back on again. Uh, we've just been chatting for 10 minutes or so before recording. And as I mentioned to you, um, our first conversation was a big hit amongst my listeners. I got many, many uh, emails and messages just saying how much they took from your wisdom. So I'm delighted to have you on again and for it to be condensed in many ways into these 20 lessons, 20 life lessons drawn from elite sport. So uh, yeah, thrilled to have you back on and also a big congratulations on the book because I think it's excellent. Thank you, Simon. Did you enjoy writing it? I did. I, I really did. I, I didn't, it was never my intention to write that book. It wasn't, I didn't have the concept for it. I'd never strayed beyond my main sport of football. But uh, I gave a talk in London to business leaders and a young lady from Penguin came to see me after the talk and said she spent the whole hour writing down things, lessons from my stories that she wanted to do with her own life and that she'd love to edit the book. So she was so enthusiastic and such a lovely lady that I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll do a couple of stories, write them down and see what you think. And she was so positive and optimistic. And I, I really enjoyed it once I got into it because I involved some of my family and friends as sample readers. And they were coming back saying, this is interesting. I, I need to do that six things every day. And I need to do the red, um, red green, and amber. Yeah. So it, it took off. So I, I've enjoyed the exercise and I, I'm delighted the book seems to be helping people. It's an interesting time, I think, because as you know, I'm writing a book that's not a million miles off. Uh, the content's mm -hmm. different, but in terms of its aim to use sport as this vehicle to help people to manage their own lives, perhaps a little bit better. And, and this topic of conversation of sports as a way to look at life and how to get the most out of life, it seems to be becoming more prevalent, less focused simply on the results and the winning and more of these type of conversations. Have you noticed that? I have, and I'm delighted with it because I think that my athletes and coaches and teams that I work with get the benefit of having day by day teaching and learning on how to manage themselves as a person, as an individual, as an athlete individually. Whereas the normal public never get that training, never get that insight. We don't study it at school. We don't study, you know, at school, then you're into work and you're on the treadmill. Nobody stops and says, have you thought about doing it this way? Have you thought about... No. Very few people have a mentor or, as I describe it, a thinking partner. And so my book and your book act as thinking partners for people who want to have a look at their own life and say, could I be doing this better? So I, I think... The and story and, and sport is such a, a fund of wonderful stories because our athletes are on the line, they mm. win or they lose, or they, they're injured, or they face life's unscripted drama every day. So it, it's, 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 it's a wonderful yeah. uh, subject to discuss. You describe it beautifully, 
as motion wrapped in emotion. That was a, yes. a nice quote I I took from the book. I thought that yes. was lovely. And just in terms of of a thinking partner, so obviously there are books like this, but perhaps just a just a quick question for you then, Bill, for anyone out there who has been on the treadmill and we've all had the treadmill stop over the last 18 months. And I think Mm. that's why a lot of people have been rethinking things. And it's been very interesting from that point of view. But if someone is thinks I don't have a thinking partner, I'm often, and I think often let's say men who are more prone to bottling things up. What would you say in terms of finding one, perhaps if you don't have money to go and fork out on a therapist or a coach or anything like that, what would be your advice well, I think you should review your social support circle and perhaps go to the edges of people that you don't normally engage with all the time. But look for somebody who, when you've spoken to them, you, you feel they are experienced, they're wise, they have things that are interesting to say. And the interesting thing is that people respond very positively to somebody coming to ask for help. Can I have a conversation with you and share some ideas with you? And I, I think people go almost all the time say, I'd be very happy to do that. And so yeah. any conversation about your issues is probably a good conversation because you're sharing the problem. Problem shared is a problem yeah. halved. So I think it's becoming an increasingly important step for people because Life is very complex. We're receiving so much information every day from 24-7 news that's not good. If you watch the evening news now, it's not good. It's not happy. It's not optimistic. It's not feel good. And, and people are feeling the burden of life. So to share that with somebody who can perhaps take you from negative to positive and remind you what a good person you really are is very important. Yeah. I didn't want to leap ahead because I think your book's laid out beautifully. One lesson builds on another, but I am going to to leap ahead to one of your lessons around your, the support team. And you talk in there about, well, you mentioned a problem shared is a problem halved. A line in the book is increasing communication decreases anxiety. And it got me thinking about not waiting to ask for help, i.e. not <clears throat> waiting for a crisis, but getting in the habit of doing it now before you have to plead for help and making it a habit. That's a fantastic point, Simon. I think the the longer you wait, the bigger the problem becomes in your mind. So what starts as a, a small issue that irritates you, you get slightly anxious about, becomes a bigger issue that's on your mind all the time and becomes a catastrophe. Something terrible is going mm. to happen. And many of us are subject to catastrophic thinking. And so to intervene in that process early on and to seek somebody's advice and to say, I can remember an athlete coming to me, a very good athlete coming to see me, who struggled to make the appointment and missed the first appointment, missed the second appointment, missed the third appointment, eventually came to the fourth appointment and then sat there at odds with the whole world. And I said to him, come on, son, tell me what the issue is. What keeps you awake at night? And he told me, and I said, oh, you're the third I've had this season. And he 
He didn't realize there were other people who had the same problem. He, in his catastrophic thinking, he decided that he was the only one. And so that was yeah. an instant relief for him that I wasn't astonished, hurt, embarrassed, that I was happy to discuss the problem and I had some experience of other people with the same problem. So your point about intervening early in the process of downhill spiral is very important. Like you said, I think if if anyone who's stuck in that catastrophic thinking can understand that there are many, many people out there who'll be having going through exactly the same thing. Like you say, it, it changes the perspective of it rapidly, doesn't it? It does. I think the important thing is the language. I think that what we do is change people's language, people's use of words. So, for example, with my grandchildren, I don't allow them to say something's difficult. It's difficult, granddad. No, it's not. It's challenging. Difficult means I might give up. Challenging means I'll probably find a way to do it eventually. So just the use of changing one word to another is very important in terms of creating strong mindsets to face the world. I remember Dave Allred, who I'm sure you're familiar with, another expert in his field, and and he Mm. talks about the the power of language, language being, I think, the most powerful, I don't know, medicine or whatever known to man. Mm. And this has come up so often. So, for example, avoiding word like I must and then change it to I want to, or like you just said, is it difficult? No, it's a challenge. Just those subtle little tweaks in language can have such a profound effect. They really can. Mm. Uh, Anyway, right. Listen, I want to dive in, Bill. And there are 20 life lessons that you talk about. And the first one is the foundation of everything, isn't it? Which is taking responsibility. So, yeah, could you just explain what taking responsibility means to you and how you would explain it to someone who's who would be like, well, what am I responsible for? What aren't I responsible for, etc.? I, I think taking responsibility is is the start of everything because it it if you take responsibility, you stop making excuses, you stop blaming. And you start to, as I was in the story, say, step across the line. And you are then responsible for your own actions. You're taking responsibility for your own behavior. You're taking responsibility for your own attitudes. And that changes your view of the world. So you start to define things by saying, what is my responsibility? What could I have done better? What must I do now? Rather than looking at the situation and saying, why didn't they do this? Looking at other people as as the the problem, not yourself. I think there is an issue nowadays with a generation which is used to receiving enormous help from others to solve their problems, and they've stopped learning to take responsibility. I think that the generation coming through is a lovely generation in terms of emotional intelligence, but a little bit short on taking responsibility for their own lives, their own condition. And I think society as well is getting used to the state taking responsibility rather than individuals taking responsibility. I remember when we spoke last time and you came out with a line that really stuck with me, which was for people who perhaps have had tough childhoods or really come from areas of deprivation, let's say, that you have empathy for them but not sympathy for them. Because 
if you've had a rough childhood, let's say, and we've all been impacted by things in childhood, like that's unavoidable. But if you stay saying, well, that's the reason why I can't do anything with my life, then that is you're avoiding to take responsibility. So it's not your fault that you had a difficult childhood. In fact, rarely it's anyone's fault, actually. Mm. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to deal with whatever has happened in your past. It's your responsibility to to face up to it. It is, and I think that that needs to be that message needs to be spoken more strongly in by parents by schools by people in the, in the, in the environments to say that you can escape this situation you can change your story and that's the theme of the book that you can take control of your life and change your story how we see ourselves becomes our reality and i came from a low working class family in the middle of manchester and how I saw myself as a boy, young boy growing up, was my reality. This was my situation. This was my environment. There was nothing else I could do about that. This is where I would be for the rest of my life. But I had various triggers which changed my mindset. Uh, going to grammar school changed my mindset. Joining the YMCA changed my mindset. Marrying a wonderful woman changed my mindset. So... I changed the way I was thinking, so changed my environment, changed my illusion of who I should be and changed my story. Yeah, so when we have a a negative story about ourselves or about others or about the world, realising that it is just that, it is just a story. It's not truth, it's not fact, it's not reality. And we have a choice to what extent we buy into that if it is a story that's holding us back. That's the key word, Simon, choice. We choose our attitude every day. In the book, I tell the story of Clint Eastwood playing golf. <laughs> and his partner asks, how old are you, Clint? He said, I'm 88 on Monday. What are you going to do? He says, I'm going to start a new movie. He said, how do you do it? And Clint says, I wake up every morning and don't let the old man in. That is a really good story. I wake up every morning and don't let the old man in. We've all got the choice in the morning of letting the old man in or getting up and getting on with a new movie. For my friends and colleagues who've got Parkinson's disease like I have, that is such an important story because it says that we choose our life. We choose our attitude, therefore we choose our life. And that's a really important thing. So you... It Once you decide to take responsibility, you are then determining your life's pattern. And that can be so exciting, so positive, so energetic. It, it just becomes wonderful, but you've got to make that decision. So just explain in simple terms then, as you said, you have Parkinson's. We were chatting about it briefly before we started recording. And just in terms of the attitude you bring to your diagnosis and also how it's perhaps surprised some of the doctors well i think i'm very fortunate not fortunate in getting parkinson's but fortunate in in having a background and experience of performance psychology of, of mind training so once i'd got over the initial shock and it was a shock and i went straight into victim mentality 
with the help of my family, I, I converted that to fighter mentality. I began to take it as an interesting exercise. Here's a problem I didn't expect to face. I'm facing it. Now, what would I advise my clients? So how do I achieve a fighter mentality when I'm struggling to put my socks on for 20 minutes in the morning? And I think that's been evident in my discussions with my consultants uh, and my Parkinson's nurses that are so wonderful. Normally, they have sat in front of them, somebody who is shocked by the news they have the condition, is frightened and worried and concerned, as you would be, but who doesn't have the tools to translate that condition into a challenge rather than a difficulty, an opportunity rather than a problem, a positive rather than a negative. And I think my, my consultant's just astonished by sitting in front of a a performance psychologist who's, who's constantly taking the negatives he's giving me and converting them to positives. You said victim mentality and fighter mentality. So what would you say is the key difference between the two? I think back to the fighter takes responsibility that the victim seeks excuses. Yeah. The fighter sees challenges the victim sees problems. It all stems from that initial mindset. I, I wake up every morning and don't let the old man in. That mindset yeah. creates the, the conduit to fighter mentality. When you hear excuses, and we all know people who are full of them, is that a, a real red flag for you? Not necessarily at the beginning of the exercise because I understand that people feel bad. So... I talk in the book about somebody who suffers a broken leg just when they've made the first team. And I understood the, the, the depth of emotion that that person felt. And so when I first spoke to them, I allowed the excuses to come in, the emotional overflow. I absorbed it. I empathized and waited for it to subside. Then when it subsided, I just said, right, what are we going to do about it? And then we went into mm. rational thought then about putting a program yeah. together for recovery and making the, getting back into the first team. This was something that really stood out for me, actually, this story. It's a really important point. So a chap whose career is on an upward trajectory, breaks his leg, and in the blink of an eye, that trajectory is stopped in its tracks. So it is normal to have that emotional reaction of why me, whatever it may be. And you talk about how you didn't go in there with an attitude of, of trying to fix him immediately. You needed to allow him to express that. So, yeah, can you just talk a little bit about, about the need to express emotion, to, for emotion to be processed and how you helped him do that, by the way, which I thought is absolutely key to then be able to get to that point of, okay, now I can see this clearly. I can move into acceptance and I can move into what am I going to do? Sport is, is about human doings, but it's, it's performed by human beings. And I think we've got to recognize that when we're dealing with a top-class athlete, we're dealing with a person. We're dealing with a person, an ordinary person who's got an extraordinary talent, but they're ordinary people. And ordinary people have strong emotions and sometimes need to offload those emotions. And it's, it's probably a good thing 
So back to the point you made before about increased communication, decreased anxiety. Sometimes offloading emotions to somebody. Women do it very well. In their friendship groups, they offload their emotion and they feel much better from it. The exercise, men do it less well. But I realized that this was such a blow to this young man, lovely young man, that if I had gone in to say, right, what are we going to do about it? He, he wouldn't have been able to deal with it because he, he, had, he hadn't released these emotions yet. So I had to wait until he'd released the emotions. And I, as you said before, Simon, I empathized. I didn't sympathize. I empathize, but it's part of the deal. When we accept the challenge of high performance, we have to accept there will be setbacks. There will be, it. if it wasn't, everybody could do it. If it was easy, everybody could do it. It's difficult. So therefore, there will be setbacks, issues, and problems. Therefore, there will be built-up emotion. So I think the key to my dealing with that young man was in probably the first couple of sessions was waiting for the emotions to subside before structuring his thinking for recovery. Yeah. A couple of thoughts that sprung to mind. You mentioned the difference between men and women and, you know, one hates to generalize, but I'm going to. For example, I remember my wife once complaining about something and I went straight into let's fix it. And it was an hour or so later she came back and said, I didn't want you to fix it. I wanted you to listen. And I think so now I've understood that, yes, you know, we, we all, and, and it works both ways. We all need that, that vent to process that emotion to then get to the point of, okay, would you now like to talk about what we can, what we could do about it or another view? And like I said, it works both ways. Also, sometimes we don't have someone that we can vent and express to. And I mentioned to you previously about uh, a talk, and I've actually stuck this in a recent newsletter about um, expressive writing, which was uh, a neuroscientist told me about this of when you have all that emotion, pent up emotion, just write forget spelling, forget grammar, forget punctuation, just this stream of consciousness. And I've 15 minutes is around. I found about the sweet spot because you get to about eight, nine minutes and you're running out of gas. And by about the 13, 14 minute mark, it's like, oh, this is a chore. Sometimes you don't even need to read it back. But when you do, you see it's so colored by the emotion you're feeling. But yes, that need to, to just get emotion out in whatever way you can. And then just quickly, in terms of this rugby player, you, you talk about listening without judgment. And it struck me that that acceptance on your part really helped him to accept. And listening without judgment is a rare skill or is a, is a rare thing that we experience, I would suggest. I would say that that's the key quality of a thinking partner or somebody in my profession. Because how can we put ourselves in that young man's situation? He's a unique person. He's got all sorts of conflicting thoughts and emotions in his mind. And so a thinking partner has to have the ability to help the person, the young person, come to their own conclusion about what is the solution to their issues. I don't tell athletes what to do. I don't tell coaches what to do. I don't tell teams what to do. I create a situation, a story, an environment where we get to the truth of the situation and they determine what is the right step to do. So I think that first stage of listening without judgment is so important. And it, 
it's difficult because you feel as though you're wasting time. You feel as though you're losing time in solving the problem. But it's an essential, important part to get from emotion to rationality, to get them to think about it. I just want to ask you a quick, from another lesson, which is about finding your why. And I only want to briefly touch on this. But you say you always start your mentoring with three questions. Hmm. Could you just share what they are and what they are designed to achieve? Well, the first question is, what do you want? Now, that is a simple question, Simon, but that is one of the most powerful questions that you can have. And you would be amazed at all the clients I've had who don't know, who can't say, who've never thought about it. They deal with life in bits. They don't put it all together. They don't have a story of their life. They don't have a, a future, short-term, long-term, a plan. They just are existing. I train today. I go home. I play video games. I watch TV. I, I have some meat. I, I go to bed early. I train tomorrow. I do the same every day. And I just say, what do you want? And they don't know. So what do you want? How badly do you want it is the second question. Because if you're aiming for high performance, it's going to be tough. So you've got to want that very badly. You've got to want that an awful lot. And that's the key to the, the great athletes I work with, the Adam Peters of this world. They want that gold medal. And the third question is, how much are you willing to suffer? But the key is the first question. And I'm constantly, and one of the reasons I wrote the book is I'm constantly amazed at people who don't have a life story. They don't have any thoughts to where they would like to be in life, what, what, what they would consider a successful life. And the interesting thing in, in, in psychology is talking to people at the end of their life. They'll be talking to me soon and, mm. and saying, what are the lessons you would like to leave behind? And they tell the honest truth. I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done that. And you look back and say, well, why didn't I do that? Because I didn't think it through. That question, what do you want? Oftentimes, people might be stuck in a trap of, I want what I perceive to be the right thing to want. Now, that might be influenced by their family, by their parents, by society more broadly. And so, therefore, getting in touch with their authentic, what they want, can be tricky. So, for someone perhaps, and I'm sure you've come across that, for someone perhaps in that, stuck in that mindset, how would you encourage them to get in touch with, with what they want and make sure it's what they want and not what someone else wants? Yes, uh, I think that's a very big issue now. I think that one of the interesting things about the book is that I went back through the correspondence I'd had from previous clients and looked at the patterns. I helped an awful lot of people over a long period of time, young people, and the young people were so fast moving in their lives, they often forgot to say thank you. They, they, they reacted to the, the help I gave them and the problem was solved and they went on. But they forgot. Then when they eventually got older and wiser, they, they contacted me to say thank you. But they also said, thank you for helping me with my sporting issues. 
but thank you for helping me as a person. One of the things they talk about is, is that I help them define what are the building blocks of a happy, flourishing life. So we talked about purpose. So what do you want? I break down into purpose. What's your purpose? What would you feel good about achieving? What do you wake up for every morning? Then we talk about how are you you supported by loving relationships? How's your support group? Who have you got on your in your corner? Then we talk about are you living in a good place? Do you live in a nice environment? Are you happy to go home? Then we talk about health. How's your health? Then we talk about financial security. So if you give young people the building blocks of a flourishing life, without those five things, your life cannot flourish. Any one of those that drops off the radar and your life is in, in, in difficulties. So from a broad topic, what do you want? I would introduce and discuss some building blocks, but allow them to construct their own story. Many people yeah. have not had anybody talk to them about those things before. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We've spoken about choice, and this is one of your lessons, is around attitude. There's a lovely quote where you say, you can often succeed with limited talent, but not limited attitude. And I, I've heard so many people say this recently, whether it be from the armed forces or business environments, it's, you can have someone who's the most talented, but if their attitude's wrong, if they're not a team player, if they are just out for themselves, it doesn't matter how, how talented you are. That person can be a real add a touch of poison to the environment. The choosing your attitude every day, 
like I said, we've already touched on it a bit, but but you in this chapter you talked about a guy called Chris. He had limiting self-talk that was hurting him. Now, my question to you around self-talk, because self-talk's a really, a really hot topic. And we've already touched on it a bit in terms of just keeping an eye out on on certain language you use, uh, you know, challenge rather than difficult or and those kind of things. My question to you really is, do you actually need to change your self-talk or do you just need to recognize that it's there? Because we all have it. And you say that you still, what's your go-to word? Useless, I think you said. <laughs> <this word. laughs> and we all, we all have it and I, I'll catch myself. But for me, it's not so much the expending the energy of changing it all the time, but just recognizing it and realizing that it pops up of its own accord and not identifying with it and still, for example, taking taking right action, regardless of what my mind happens to be saying, if I'm tired or dehydrated or hmm. you know, any of those other factors. So I just wanted to, to get your, your take on this. Uh, you're spot on, Simon. We need to recognize it. It's always going to be there. We're always at, at war with the environment, with the difficulties of life. Life is not easy. And we're all victim at some stages. Some stage every day we might be a victim. Might be tiredness, might be emotion, could be anger. But as long as we recognize it and we recognize it, the more we practice it, the more faster we recognize it. So I still have my emotional overloads. But thank goodness I'm recognizing them early and going, uh-oh, Bill, you're in red. Get back to Amber. So I, yeah. I think the key is if we recognize it earlier, we'll have less negative conversations in our mind. We'll stop beating ourselves up so much and wasting so much time and energy on negative thinking. So it, it's yeah. the recognition, which comes after time of yeah. talking about these things. And actually, I think that's the power for me of of meditation is not the relaxation. It's just re- sitting there for 20 minutes and recognizing that this stream of thoughts just pop up of their own accord. There's, there's, It's not me doing it. They're just coming. And you talked about emotional overload, and I can identify with that. And and actually, it relates back to, say, responsibility. So I had a, I had a bit of an outburst recently that I wasn't hugely proud of. But then I think taking responsibility for it, apologizing for it and recognizing that yes i slipped up and that is something we all do but then i didn't beat myself up for it so the relationship between say that emotional overload not identifying with the the thinking but then taking responsibility when we do slip up rather than stewing and beating myself up and keeping quiet and pretending it hadn't happened no fess up put your hand up move on is that something that you recognize uh, that you, you've explained it beautifully, Simon, and uh, that's that's exactly what I recognise. The helping people put triggers in their mind, in their thinking, to say, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, I'm in negative self-talk. I've had an emotional overload. I've done something. My behaviour was not what I wanted it to be." And to go back to our starting point, to take responsibility for it and to deal with it. So we can react to it, oh my God, or we can deal with it. And dealing with it says, I apologize, means me going to my wife normally and going, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I regret it. And it's over with. And how good do you feel afterwards? 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like the weights off your off your shoulders. You, you, you totally. can carry on with the positive and happy things in life. Yeah. I wish somebody told me that it. 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Well, listen, what is it? You're never too, never too late to learn, Bill. I think uh, I think it's <laughs> saying and you know, and and pass your wisdom forward as you're very so good at doing. Um you touched on the the traffic light the traffic oh, yes. lights and you mentioned them there and i think this is so useful to know because so green amber and red so for example if i'm well rested if i you know not got a, a million deadlines if i've eaten healthily etc cetera, etc cetera, done all those things the sort of self care things then i'm less likely to become emotionally overloaded obviously then Perhaps I've had a couple of late nights. Perhaps I'm working too late. Perhaps I haven't connected with my my support network as much, etc. Then you slip into amber, and then when you get into red, which is where, let's say you've, uh, well, put it this way: I had a wedding recently. The next day, I think I was pretty much uh, in in red. You know, put it for obvious reasons. Um, so yeah, so just recognizing where we are on that spectrum, and taking steps to, to get back into into the green. I think this is such a valuable visual aid. So could you just explain how to best utilise it? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a thinking device. It's a device to trigger your thinking, to recognise the, 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 the direction of your thinking. So I, I give an example with the football team playing in a, a very important European game where there was a going to be a very difficult crowd, a very difficult environment. And so we decided to stay in the green. And it was a nice symbolic thing. So we talked about traffic lights and we talked about when you're driving, the traffic lights on green, that's a nice thing. You're flowing. Everything's going well. Everything's going in the right direction. You're in control. And then we talked about what it would be like in red when everything stops and, and you, you feel annoyed because you're waiting, you're irritated. And the importance of amber, you get this little wonderful warning sign when you're going to go from green to red called amber. And it's recognizing that in our thinking and going, do I want to go into red? Do I want to go into that situation? And talking through about what that situation means and the impact and the effects of that that's when we that's when we create our worst behavior that's when we we yeah. get sent off the field and have to sit down for three games and wait to come back and lose our place in the team and never recover it so it's a tool for triggering the mind when it's running through various emotional states to stay in control i was reflecting on this and i thought about my amber uh, what would be my signs of amber? And it would be, for example, there may be a little bit of heat in my torso. So it's a sensation yes. as that emotion. But also I may notice I might be, let's say, making breakfast and having a, a bit of an argument in my head with someone who's not there, you know, <laughs> or, or criticizing someone or, you know, that's not unusual. I mean, it used to happen to me a lot more. I'd be in the shower. The amount of time, the amount of arguments I've had in the shower over the years <laughs> with no one there is incredible. But yes, yeah, so now just getting to that point of recognizing those signs. And then an analogy I, like to, I quite like is, is the snow globe one. So mm. at that point, I'm thinking, right, stop shaking the snow globe. 
put it down, let it settle. And that might mean, okay, not going on my phone because that's obviously stimulating if you're just scrolling through your phone. You know, not having conversations that might be antagonistic, going for a walk, reading a book that's just going to set just those things Mm. to settle me down. If someone is in amber, what would be your advice about getting back into green? Well, in in some situations, and you've just described it, is I call it in the book a mental timeout. Coming off the treadmill or coming off the emotional ride and having a mental timeout. And, And it might be reading a book, it might be going for a walk, it might be having a shower, it might just be walking away from a situation for 10 seconds. But the mental timeout allows us to stop the flow of green, amber, red. It's so fast. It can happen so fast. We intervene and create a mental timeout. Now, in a game situation where I've got a situation with the player on the field, say, I might create a different sort of trigger. So one of my players still does to this day, has two elastic bands around his wrist and snaps them when he goes into amber. And that's his cue for stepping away, breathing in, calming his mind, going back into the green. Because we have discussed at length the implications of going into the red, what it will mean, the negative consequences of going into the red. So it's become important enough for him to recognize the cue, amber, snap his elastic bands, and walk away, breathe in, and then continue with the game, not get sent off. Yeah, that's fantastic. As you were talking, I just had a bit of an idea of just sharing where I am on the spectrum, for example, with my wife, particularly as you know, we both work at home. If you're sitting down for dinner and go, just so you know, I'm feeling a little bit in amber right now, then, yeah. then you, can both, you can both perhaps tread that little bit more carefully. Now, a, a few more absolute gems that you talk about uh, in, in the lesson around aiming for mastery, not, not perfection. Something I think is excellent, and this really reminded me of the earlier conversation we had, which is around raising your bottom line. So not mm-hmm. striving to be perfect when you're at your best, but actually raising your, your level of performance when you're not at your best. So bringing the bottom up, as it were. I think that a lot of young people in, in this day and age of social media pressure, etc., aim for perfection. But perfection, 100% performance, is virtually impossible. So I asked them, what's the best performance you've ever done? And they might say 90%. I've got 90% of the way there. That's very good. What's your worst? Well, on my worst day, Bill, it could be 60%. Well, 60% unacceptable for in a team context, unacceptable in a performance context. To not know when you go on the field or on the court whether you're going to get a 90% or a 60% performance is just incredible. No coach can trust you. No team can trust you. So much more doable is to raise the bottom line. Raise the 60 to 80 so that consistently you're achieving 80% plus and sometimes you're achieving 90% plus. Now, it's quite interesting when that process occurs of you raising your bottom line. So it's just like somebody going in the office every day. Good days, bad days. Reduce the number of bad days. 
go in the office determined to be an 80% day at least. And it's, it's amazing how often when you make that determination, arriving a little bit early, looking smart, moving on, putting energy into the workplace, you actually get to 90%. And you, you hover more at the higher level and you recognize for your performance. So I think that for me, raising the bottom line triggers a lot of very good things that happen in performance because you're not allowing the excuses of one or two mistakes early in the game to drag you down. We all go on the field wanting a 90% game, but one or two mistakes can drag some people down to a 60% game. Not allowing those excuses to come in and at least emerging with an 80% game is a sign of increasing character and and mental strength. So if you've got that sign of the voice piping up with, oh, it's not going to happen today or, oh, this is going to be a grim day. That's the uh, the sign that, okay, this is the day you need to really get that that level up. Though that's the thing to focus on, not the when you're flying and we can all perform when we're flying and feeling good. It's, it's that other end that we need to keep an eye on. I think that's a fabulous Correct. bit of advice. And you mentioned arriving early. As you know, this is one of my favorite bits of your book. The small steps and everyone's, well, I'm sure lots of people who are listening have heard the quote about make your bed because once (laughs) you've made your bed, you've done one positive thing in the day. You elaborate on that quite a lot. So it could be arrive early. I think, so there was one chap, I think it was Evan Mm. who was, he was a 60 percenter, should we say on, on a bad day. So you got him to do things like arrive early one next, get a haircut, look smart, then be polite shake hands, please thank you, all, and all these little things, and they have that compound effect, don't they? Yes. Evan was um, a 19-year-old boy who was going to get released by the, the team manager, and he had pretty good talent. The, the coaches loved him, but he had no attitude. So we set about a three-week program. He had to do something every day. The first day, as you say, was arrive early. He, he, the training was at 10.30. He'd arrive at 10.28. And he'd rush on the field and he wouldn't be ready. He wouldn't be prepared. He wouldn't be professional. So 9.30 the first day. And then we added things to it. And we added things about personal qualities. We added things about interpersonal qualities. So eventually he had to come in, shake hands with everybody he met and wish them a, a good morning. We include something on listening when people spoke and being interested, asking questions about other people. First on the field, last off the field, seeking leadership opportunities. And he blossomed. Uh, he blossomed so much that two years later he was captain of the team and he had a fantastic career. He's, he's a very, very, he was a very well-known footballer. The key was <laughs> the things I asked him to do were doable. So if you set a New Year's resolution, I'm going to be the best person in the world. It's too big. It's too complex. But if you say, tomorrow I'm going to greet everybody with a smile, and ask how they are. It's doable. So I, I think that I called it a tick stepladder. So we knew yeah. where we wanted to take Evan in three weeks, but there were 21 rungs in the stepladder he had to go through. Worked very well. Yeah. A quote that I've nabbed out of it is, a stepladder of good habits builds momentum to being a self-managing athlete. And that can be applied in, in any area. And as I've mentioned to you, before we started recording, 
the difference, for example, for me, in terms of during lockdown, working in this room, which is now my office, which wasn't initially my office until a year and a half ago. But if I shower, shave and put on a shirt, as opposed to not shaving and putting on a T-shirt, it's a very subtle difference. But to me, it does make have an impact on how I perform or how I feel. And often, not always, but often how I perform that day. So these little, like you say, little achievable things that we can do can really have a snowball effect, can't they? But um, I mean, you talk well, you about said, actually, in the, in, sorry, go on, Bill. You, you, you're actually sending a message. You're sending a message to your brain to switch on to this, what you're going to do, this activity you're going to do. So you, you get yourself ready, you put on a clean shirt, you do your hair, you shower. You're sending a message to say, this is important. I'm preparing for this. So if you don't do those things, it's almost as though you're not preparing for your work. You're just going to drift into it. Mm. So I think it's very important. Look good, feel good, play good. Look good, feel good, play that's good. A, I think that's really important. Yeah, that's a lovely quote. You talk about another lesson being around process, and this is obviously something we've spoken about a lot, concentrating on the everyday process of becoming excellent. And could you just give the example? Obviously, well, your CV is uh, extensive and uh, glittering, I would say, Bill. And uh, obviously, you know, you were at Manchester United during the uh, their real glory days. And there was a rainy Tuesday. Uh, I think, wasn't it? You, you just started there, in fact. Would you mind just, just sharing started. this story? Because I thought this... No, the first, the first week at Manchester United was just totally incredible. I'd come from Carlisle, where I started, a lovely Carlisle, and then Derby County. So I'd stepped up and I'd noticed a, a difference in the training regime and the attitudes of the players. But when I came to Manchester United, it was a different level entirely. The first day I was there, I, I watched the players challenge each other when they didn't perform well. And I'd not seen that before. Players are usually back off challenging each other. Manchester United, especially around Roy Keane, he was very influential and challenged the players to be better. Very important person there. The second day was an awful Manchester day. Sky was black, hailstones, wind. <laughs> I was dressed like Michelin Man going out to practice. And I walked past the dressing room and I heard a shout, boys, rainy Tuesday morning, let's go. And I asked, I think it was Gary Neville afterwards. I said, Gary, what was that shout? He said, well, we have a view that if we train like champions on a rainy Tuesday morning, Saturday will be easy. And that was the secret of Manchester United's success. They train like champions every day. So their thinking like a champion became habitual. So Saturday became just another day. Yeah. I passed that message on to Adam Peaty, yeah. the swimmer. And he trains like a champion twice a day. Before he goes in the arena, the swimming arena, he stops and says, six o'clock in the morning, not easy, Simon. He says, I'm going to train like a champion. Yeah. Six o'clock in the evening, he comes back for another two hours. I'm going to train like a champion. So that was a very big lesson for me about how champions think, how high achievers think. They make every day their masterpiece. Yeah. 
And that comes back to the raising of that bottom line, isn't it? It's like there, there yes. is no 60%. I'm not going to accept a 60%. I, I'm going to give it my absolute all on those days when people who may have all the talent in the world, but if they don't have that attitude on that day and, and do slip down to a 60%, it, that's what separates them. It's a no excuse mentality. That's a very important phrase, no excuse mentality. Because yeah. I think when, you, when you're seeking high performance, there are a million excuses, but no reason yeah. why you shouldn't perform well. And if you can get into that yeah. state of mind that there'll always be excuses and they'll always be invading your mind and, and you just have to bat them away and let your driving force, what do I want? dominate. I want to be a champion. Therefore, I must train like a champion. One of the things about Adam Peaty, I, I, I did an exercise on beliefs with him, self-belief. And he put mm. as one of his self-beliefs, these conditions are perfect for me. And I asked him what he meant by that. And he said, well, we, we face all sorts of conditions. But if I have an attitude that these, condition, these conditions are perfect for me, there's no excuse. 25-meter pool, 50-meter pool, indoor, outdoor, whatever. I just deal with it. Now, yeah. you think how important that was in Tokyo with those strange conditions, no crowd, eerie, it's isolated. These conditions are perfect for me. We pass that to the British swimming team going to Tokyo. These conditions are perfect for us. If we have that attitude and other teams come to Tokyo and go, oh, my God, look at this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've got a very big competitive advantage, which actually yeah. proved to be the case. That's full, full acceptance. That acceptance of, of whatever is. I mean, that is one of the, the keys yes. to life. Um, I hate to go back, but, but just as you were speaking, the what do I want question, the fundamental question you ask, just, just a quick add on to that. So would you advise that in terms of what do I want in terms of what do I want to achieve? Or what do I want to be? So, because I was just thinking as you were saying that, okay, what do I want? I want to be honest and I want to be, it's more for me around values necessarily than goals. What, what's the balance in, in that, you know, with what do I want in between values and goals? Well, remember, I'm meeting people in specific circumstances. So they're coming to me about performance issues. So they're going to talk initially about what do I want performance-wise. And so that's the nature of the conversation. But inevitably, when you're dealing with young people or even older coaches and, and they're, they're, they're perhaps approaching a thinking partner for the first time, you can't help but drift into personal qualities as well. So they might talk about performance qualities to begin with, but they're, in, they're, they're linked inextricably with personal qualities. Mm. So they might talk about personal yeah. issues. So very often with a coach, I have to talk also about work-life balance because if they come into work with bricks on the back because they've, they've not been home a lot and the, and the wife has got two young babies to manage and struggling a little bit and they're, they're not supporting this. It, it, very often coaches come into work with bricks on the back because they're not clear of the issues from home and that makes them a less effective coach. So I have to deal with that transition from yeah. home to work so it, the conversation starts specific on performance but inevitably moves to personal we, then we start to flesh yeah. out the story 
of who you want to be as well as what you want to be. Yes, I love that. Who do you want to be? I think that's absolutely fundamental. Right. Well, Bill, there are so many, so many lessons and I've got to pick a a handful more. (laughs) So I don't want to eat up all your day. Um, So listen, controlling your bandwidth. This is fantastic. Okay. Because the way I understand this is people have different bandwidths, don't they? Adam Peaty's bandwidth is pretty large, as we know, but other people are less. And I know, for example, for me, my nervous system, it can take a while to settle, for example. So yeah, you talk about setting boundaries on your bandwidth. So could you just elaborate on this and the art of saying no and and that kind of thing? Well, bandwidth uh, applies to the amount of situations that you can deal with satisfactorily, physically, mentally, emotionally, before they overwhelm you. So each of us is unique and has, as you just said with Adam, a different range of bandwidths. So what I do with my clients when they come to me feeling overwhelmed, I say, well, let's start with the essential part of the bandwidth. And we build a little picture on paper. The most important issue on your bandwidth is self-maintenance. That sounds, I think Peter Drucker, the famous management guru, said the manager's first and foremost responsibilities to themselves. And that sounded terribly selfish, but he was absolutely true. If Simon Mundy doesn't look after Simon Mundy, then there's little value for his wife and his six-year-old girl. So that's a responsibility for you to take care of yourself. Now, that's the center part of the bandwidth we discussed. Now, for example, for me, Simon, with, 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 with Parkinson's, that bandwidth has grown quite a bit. I have exercise, medication, visits to the doctors, things I have to do to make sure I'm the best I can be for my wife and family and for my work. So we'd add to that on one side, we all need to work and earn an income and sustain our family. So we put work. On the other side, we've got family. We all need to take care of our family and be the best we can be for our family and ensure their their success and well-being. Then you start to get options. You start to add on. So it's that point where it becomes a choice of where you see yourself, who you want to be, what you want to be. And it, there comes a point where I say to somebody that's adding on, well, can you do that and still take care of yourself, your family, and your work to the level you want to do. Because you are telling me that your work is being affected, your family is being affected because the pressure of your life at the moment. So it does come down to eventually saying, who do I want to be? What do I want to be? What are my priorities in life? And what do I not need to do? What must I stop doing? That's an important question. What must I stop doing? I can't remember who said it, but someone came out with a quote, the art of getting ahead is not just about what we do. You could argue even more, it's about what we choose not to do. Ah, Very good. Yes, I agree. And it really is talking about bandwidth. Because if you want to be an A-grade performer, an A-grade person, then really you're Three central items, self-management, family, and work need to be done at 90% plus. 
not work at 90%, family at 40%. Not work and family at 80% and, and self-management at 40%. Because you, you, those three have got to be high-performing activities in your life to be what to get what you want to be who you want to be. The others are optional. And if you've got stamina and energy and youth, you can take the I I find I cannot take the other things on now. But some people can. Yeah. So I, I think when 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 people come to see me, coaches say I'm overwhelmed. I say, well, what must you stop doing in order to put more time and investment into that? If you're having trouble with work life balance, what must you stop doing at work in order to have more time with your family and more care and etc. I think that's a superb point. So work, family, health. Was it those were the three were they? Work, family. Self-management, self work, so, family. So health would fall into that so self-management. You, 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 you talked about self-management before, Simon, because you said, when I have a shower, do my hair, put a nice clean shirt on, I feel better for work. You also feel better for your family. Mm. That's the point about making your bed. You're mm. setting a mindset not wake, waking up in the morning and not letting the old man in. You're setting yeah. a mindset that affects and, and, and helps the people around you. You're saying, today, is, I'm going to make today my masterpiece. I'm not going to drift into it because I'm at home and just get through the day. I'm going to make today my masterpiece. So I think that it, it, bandwidth is, is very important in terms of deciding your 90% activities and, and then we we talk about what does 90% mean with your family? What does it actually mean? So I talk with a coach occasionally about what would your wife say 90% was? What would your daughter say 90% was? It's a very interesting conversation and I've had some superb yeah. conversations with people. That is an interesting conversation and one I'm going to do at some point with my wife very soon, definitely. Um, <laughs> She'd love it. She will love it. She will really she will. enjoy it. I'm, yeah. I, I'm sure she will, absolutely. And it's a vital conversation to have. Right, I'm going to skip over a couple just quickly. Do the right thing and be accountable is one of your lessons. And I just love the quote that you have of Abraham Lincoln. When I do good, I feel good. And when I do bad, I feel bad. And I think our feelings are such a good barometer in that yes. way. But I'd like you, if you wouldn't mind, to share your story where you talk about modeling and acting like your hero, because th this was a cracking anecdote as uh, obviously Sir Alex, we know Sir Alex Ferguson, probably the greatest British football manager of all time. Mm. Um, and you worked very closely with Sir Alex and you also worked very closely with Steve McLaren, who was a fantastic coach. And then obviously when he was put into a position and I, I think from memory in the book, a match hadn't gone his way and you just whispered a little something in his ear that, <laughs> um, yeah, really helped him. So could you just share that with us, please, Bill? Well, Steve and I moved from Manchester United to Middlesbrough. Steve as manager, me as assistant manager. And we'd left behind Manchester United because Steve... <laughs> felt that Alex was going to retire. He didn't, as it happened, uh, but that was, that prompted our move. And we had six weeks pre-season. We worked really hard. We had our first game at home. We lost 4-0. And I watched Steve, this young man, young coach, in his first managerial role. I watched him. He had to deal with himself. He was terribly upset, disappointed. 
He had to deal with that. He had to go in the dressing room and deal with the players. He then had to deal with the staff. And then he had to go down the corridor to the national press and deal with them. And as I, I said, oh, come on, I'll walk down with you, Steve. We walked down and I could tell from his body language and his whole demeanor that he was just worried and concerned about what was to come and struggling with his emotions. So I stopped him and said, it just occurred to me, Steve, how do you think Alex would deal with this press conference? And Steve loved Alex, so he, he said, oh, he'd, be, he'd, he'd go in and dominate the room and he'd, he'd, he'd look him in the eye and he'd tell him how it is and he'd tell him that this is a team on the move. We are going to be... I said, oh, that's interesting. So, <laughs> and then I watched Steve do exactly the same. He walked in. He was terrific. He was fantastic. <laughs> he looked him in the eye. He said, this is only the start of the journey. Nobody said it was going to be easy. We've got a long way to go, but we've made a step. Things will get better. And it, it, it was a big lesson. And it, the, the lesson is that sometimes when we lack the resources to manage a situation ourselves, sometimes modeling on a hero of ours, modeling on somebody that's very good, is a helpful tool to make. So I, I talk in the book about several examples of modeling and how mm. we can, for a moment, become our hero. Our hero gives us strength. And that was mm. that was a very good example yeah. because within a space of the corridor was only thirty meters long. Within that thirty meters, we changed Steve's mindset from victim to fighter, from negative to positive, from anxious to confident, all because of a little simple switch and his thinking. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yeah, incredibly powerful. I remember someone recommending having Rafa Nadal as a model in the same way because Rafa's renowned for... Have you ever seen Rafa Nadal give anything but... I'm not going to go out with the uh, the cliched 110%. Has anyone ever seen Rafa Nadal not give 100%? He can't do it. And mm. so, yes, on those days, perhaps when you're feeling like 60%, maybe a question to ask. For the tennis fans out there, would be uh, what would Rafa do? For the football fans, Correct. what would what would Sir Alex do? Anyway, well, listen, Correct. this book is absolutely chock full of gems, the likes of which you've been sharing. I think it's a lovely anecdote. It's a nice place to finish, and I just want to thank you. Really, it's it's you know I always really enjoy talking to you, Bill. I love picking your brains. You're so full of wisdom. It's a uh, you know yes, it's it's just a real pleasure for me. So I I really appreciate your time uh, and. I can't recommend this. Changing your story. 20 life lessons drawn from elite sport. Uh, highly enough because, um, you know, Bill, you've definitely internalized the lessons. You apply them in your own life. And yes, it's it's a fantastic read and you're a fantastic person to spend an hour and a bit with. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Simon. Take care. 
thank you very much for listening to this week's episode with Bill Bezik. There was so much to take from this conversation, but as Bill says, it all starts with taking responsibility, putting excuses and blame to one side and taking charge of yourself each and every day. Also, I love that idea of bringing up your average on your worst days from, say, a 60 to an 80. Do that and you'll be flying. I'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, get in touch via social media at Simon Mundy. Thanks to everyone who's dropped me a message of late. It's always much appreciated. You can, of course, also contact me via my website, simonmundy.com, where you can also sign up for this week's newsletter, Monday on Monday. Three of the best nuggets from over 160 conversations dating back over three years. This week, looking at one of the most valuable phrases from Stoic philosophy and why it's important to understand how all the different parts of your business work. And finally, if you could share this episode and rate and review this podcast, I would be hugely grateful. Anyway, that's it for this week. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.